I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Baselayer is sponsored by Diginex and by its digital asset exchange, Equos. As an exchange, Equos is focused on delivering innovative product compliance, fairness, and most importantly, trust. In a time when institutional investors are beginning to seriously review digital assets for their portfolio, these are key elements necessary to build bridges to new investors. Equos currently provides digital asset spot trading and perpetual futures, and plans to soon offer dated futures and options. Parent company Diginex also provides capital markets advisory, asset management, and custody. To check them out, you can go to diginex.com and equos.io. That is E-Q-U-O-S.io. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have Matthew Edwards, the founding partner and CEO and CIO at Dalpha Capital with me today. Matthew, how are you? I am well, sir. How are you? Doing well, doing well on a Friday. Looking forward to a few days of maybe not looking at digital assets. However, Bitcoin just makes it impossible for you not to do that. Um, it's always amazing. You always think that you can pull away for a few days, and then it just says, "Nope, you can't do that." Um, we're gonna have a great conversation. You know, Alpha is part of what I would call the institutionalization of digital assets. Uh, people like Matthew, with years of experience from traditional finance, have been coming into this world, understand the concept of things like fiduciary responsibility, uh, which I think are incredibly important as we're growing the sandbox of investors and digital assets. But before we get too far into you know what Dalpha is doing and what Matthew and his team are up to, what we like to do with our guests is talk to them about how we got to this point. And as I mentioned before, Matthew has a wealth of experience uh, coming from Groves of Capital, where he was uh, Asia strategy head, and then moving through Guard Capital and a few other different places along the way. What we'd like to talk about is when, not necessarily when was the Bitcoin moment, air quotes, but what about digital assets? What about the asset class and the technology that was emerging really inspired you to cross the chasm into this world and act as an investor and someone who's building a firm in the space. Excellent. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, David, and, and appreciate you having me on. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say. <laughs> um, so I guess just, just quickly on my own background. So as you alluded to, uh, I grew up in the world of, of, it's kind of funny to call it traditional hedge fund investing since hedge funds typically fall into the alternative bucket. For, for allocators, but I grew up in traditional hedge funds. I spent the formative part of my career at a firm called Grosvenor Capital Management. And Grosvenor, as uh, some of your listeners may know, is the oldest U.S.-based fund of hedge funds. Mm-hmm. It was started back in 1971 by Dick Eldon, um, who was basically kind of the godfather of, of hedge fund investing. 
uh, and has since grown in to become one of the more uh, influential and larger alternative investment firms in the world. Um, I joined the firm back in 2001 when we were around about two and a half billion. I left 13 years later when we were roughly 50 billion. So got to see quite a bit um, during that during that period rather, um, and uh, spent the bulk of my time at Grosvenor on the manager research side. Uh, I spent I was lucky enough to spend the first couple of years working directly with Dick Galden, who always, as a founder of the firm, always had his own analyst. And so kind of got to learn the business at the, the feet of Dick, which was um, really quite interesting. And kind of cut my teeth uh, on that side of the business and then became a full-fledged member of the manager research team. And for some strange reason, uh, they decided to give uh, a young kid, a whippersnapper from Garland, Texas, responsibility for Asia. Uh, so I ended up taking over our our Asian investment um, focus and Japan was a was kind of the epicenter of hedge funds back in the day. So this mm-hmm. was probably 04, 05 uh, when we decided to open an office in Tokyo. We had a very large Japanese client base. All things Asian hedge fund investing were, were Japan focused at that time. So they decided they wanted to move me out uh, to Tokyo and kind of serve as a bridge between the, the, our Japanese colleagues and clients and the, the mothership back in Chicago. So I spent about four years there, bounced around the region, looking for interesting investment opportunities uh, and also assisting our Japanese colleagues and servicing our, our clients there. And then um, we decided a few years later that we wanted to open a Hong Kong office. So I moved to Hong Kong in January 2013 to open the office for Grovener uh, at that time. I ended up leaving the firm about a year later um, to help start a hedge fund in Hong Kong. And by the time I left Grovener, I was our agent strategy head, as you mentioned, and also one of four portfolio managers globally within the firm. And looking back over my career at Grosvenor, I led due diligence on a couple dozen hedge funds uh, that resulted in the deployment of, of just over $2 billion in total. And as portfolio manager, I also managed a number of multi-manager, multi-strategy portfolios, uh, totaling to the tune of, of several billion dollars, mostly on behalf of large institutional clients throughout the APAC region. Um, I helped, uh, you know, as you can imagine, being on the other, uh, on the allocator side of the table, I had developed a curiosity about the hedge fund side. And uh, I had befriended a gentleman who at the time was the co-head of Asia Macro Training at Goldman, uh, Lee is his name. And he grew up on the desk that Mike Novogratz started back in the day for Goldman in Tokyo. And has produced um, you know, some really excellent macro trading talent, including Leland. Um, and Leland was looking to kind of leave Goldman and set up his own shop. And he asked me to come along and help him do it. So I had a chance to, to kind of see how the sausage was made, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, we launched Guard in August of 2014, which is shy of 50 million. Um, we had cobbled together some friends and family as well as we had a few opportunistic institutional investors that were willing to allocate to uh, punchy young startups like us. And then we were a short 12 months later over a billion. So uh, we achieved that level of growth with no strategic, no anchor, no seed, which made us, I think to this day, the fastest growing Asia-based hedge fund startup ever, wow. uh, which was uh, which was great, uh, great fun. So we ran that for about three years. Um, we ended up returning capital, not because we blew up or anything, but more because we just weren't really seeing enough of a wave opportunity to kind of justify the fees. So even though we had a very good business, Leland uh, made the, the high integrity decision to return capital. Mm-hmm. And I had, at that point, spent really the better part of 17, 18 years in hedge funds. And over that period, 
Uh, I had already kind of grown disenchanted with the notion of sustainable alpha uh, in traditional liquid markets. So even before Leland made the decision to, to shut guard down, um, I had already decided I, I had had enough of this space. So I decided to leave hedge funds altogether. Hmm. Tried my hand at some consulting type work on, around leadership advisory and talent assessment. But, and in that process, so this must have been, you know, I, I suppose the early part of 2017, I learned about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And I am uh, by no stretch of the imagination a technologist, um, but uh, I was kind of pushed into the space uh, by a friend of mine and came to quickly appreciate that, you know, playing armchair strategist, that this, this space uh, was really kind of the antithesis of my old world uh, and that it was a definition of inefficient. And that's, that really kind of stood out to me as, as offering you know, something worthwhile to kind of focus on and learn more about. And so I started to do that, kind of build the end somewhat. Um, and after a year and a half or so in consulting, I actually came across the guys at Diginex um, who were building uh, kind of a diversified financial services firm within this space. And their overarching objective was to really help institutionalize the infrastructure mm-hmm. um, and provide, provide that infrastructure to kind of facilitate the institutionalization of this asset class. And that, that really resonated with me. And I joined them and kind of helped them out with a few things. Um, ended up taking over the asset management business at the, the center of Wedgwood City Crypto Fund of Funds. Um, and I was the obvious person to kind of look after that given my own background. Um, and, you know, I had a very strong entrepreneurial itch um, that I wanted to, to scratch mm-hmm. and ultimately decided, you know, why build a startup within a startup when I go try to build that startup on my own. So that's what we're, doing here at Delpha, um, which I guess brings us to present day. Um, you know, Delpha is a fund of hedge funds focused on digital asset trading strategies. Uh, and, you know, if I were to kind of state at the top, a very ambitious goal uh, is to, you know, in many ways kind of do the same thing that Grokner did for traditional hedge funds right. um, back in the mid nineties. And, and so for the longest time, you know, hedge funds were really kind of a backwater uh, from, a, from an allocation perspective. They were mostly engaged by high net worth investors and family offices. Mm-hmm. But institutions didn't really pay much attention uh, until the early 90s. Uh, and it was probably David Swenson's allocation to Tom Steyer at Fairline back in 1989 uh, that caused these institutions to sit up and take notice. Right. Um, and the real big wave came in, I believe it was 95, 96, when certain uh, of the larger Japanese financial institutions said, hey, there's this really interesting risk return profile out there called hedge funds. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're a little bit scary, right? right. Um, at that time, there was some regulatory uncertainty. Uh, it's fairly opaque and hard to access. There was these really kind of complicated trading strategies on offer. Operational risks were through the roof. Um, risk management was an afterthought. And... Um, and they said, we're going to hire a professional to go out there and build us a portfolio to give us access to this very interesting risk return profile that we can access ourselves. And so Grovner um, was really kind of the entree uh, and took in a billion dollars in total from these Japanese institutions. And that, I think, ushered in the era of institutional allocation into hedge funds. And so right. I, look at, I look at kind of the digital uh, asset class and I look at these fund managers out there attempting to apply their trade and trade. And I, and I, I see a lot of similarities, right? It's, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it, but it does run. And um, I see quite a bit in the way of similarity. 
right. when we look at the space that is all of those things that hedge funds were in the early days, but you know, exacerbating the issue is the fact that this is an entirely new asset class. Right. And so having a professional jungle guide, I think there's some real value in there. So let's dig in there a little bit. So back in the day, you know, uh, when I was on the other side of the spectrum, the idea of a fund to fund around, let's just say 2011, 2012 to, you know, 15 or 16 really became a little bit of a dirty word because you had, you know, fees on fees and you had, a majority of the funds out there were not necessarily generating alpha. It was basically beta that was levered up, um, you know, kind of putting lipstick on a pig, if you will. And so the fund-to-fund world did have a bit of a retracement, if you will. And what I think is interesting, and I want your opinion on this, the world of fund-to-funds and digital assets really makes a heck of a lot of sense right now because to your point in the early days of funds in the early days of fund to funds trying to discern if you are a family office out there if you're an institutional investor trying to discern between the five or six hundred different funds out there their different strategies their custodial relationships their back office all of those different things i could see obviously if i was on the other side of the thing that that's not very easy to do. So in your opinion, obviously you're building a firm to do this in, in the first place. You know, the fund to fund approach back in traditional air quotes finance was again, towards the latter part of the last, you know, five or six or seven years, definitely had a retracement. But in this world, because it's so new and so fresh, why does it make so much sense? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think it's a, a a very well taken point. Um, and the decline in appetite, I think, for fund of funds really occurred post GFC and post Madoff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there were a host of, of issues that perhaps inform the decline in the overall appetite for fund of funds. But you know, a lot of it I, I kind of attribute really to, to two things. One is there hasn't, there's been a very steady degradation in alpha, right? Mm-hmm. Within these traditional markets. And we, we talked about this in, in, in one of our blog posts. And, um, you know, there was a very interesting graph that Bloomberg put out you know, a year or so back, which basically shows over the past three decades, you know, the average returns, net of all fees of, of hedge funds. And it's just been a, it's basically been a straight line down, right? Um, and, you know, what's behind that? Who knows? You know, there's been a preponderance of competition flooding the space, you know, all these algorithmic traders and quant shops um, that are chopping everyone up. Um, but the reality is, you know, there's just not a lot of alpha on alpha. So if you, if you therefore, if you start with that as a basic premise and then say, okay, as a fund of funds, you're going to have to go out there and you're going to try to find folks that you think are capable of generating attractive risk-adjusted returns as well as absolute returns over a cycle, uh, I think it's going to be a challenge, right? Because what they're choosing from is already a universe of options that's in dwindling supply. And so if that's your, if that's what you're solving for, then obviously you're going to have an issue, right? That's going to be challenging. So I think investors kind of realize that, look, hedge funds on balance aren't adding as much value as you used to. And therefore, fund of funds, of course, by definition, will be adding less value. So that that's a natural, 
I suppose, um, expectation given the nature of the environment, the backdrop. But then there's also the issue around, uh, I think, in my estimation, and of course, this is a bit self-serving given my currency, but there's been a, in addition to the dwindling supply of alpha, I think there's been a dwindling supply of risk appetite. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these businesses, and this doesn't just apply to fund of funds, I think it applies to most mature asset management business, and this would in- include consultants broadly defined. You know, they're, you need to think about their incentives and the incentives for them are to attract and retain assets, right? At the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you need to, you know, the, the sort of prevailing wisdom is to just don't make any mistakes, right? It's almost like the, you know, the Warren Buffett rules for investing. There are two rules. One is don't lose money. The second rule is don't forget rule number one. Right. And, um, what does that lead to? That leads to, uh, basically a very average outcome for everyone at the end of the day. And so when you're aiming for an average outcome in a space that's not producing any interesting outcomes, then obviously what are you left with? You're left with, I think, uh, a pretty disappointing result for those investors looking at, at fund of funds and other mature asset management businesses. I think that is a very interesting take. Yes, there are definitely those out there that are not enumerated or incentivized to take outside risk if you are a CIO of an endowment and you're following Harvard and Yale and they're doing their thing, you're not necessarily they're used as a benchmark, let's just you know put it bluntly. You know, it's it's hard to to justify because at the and I want your opinion on this, this idea of career risk. And I think that's been one of the issues in terms of getting kind of more mass adoption from institutional investors is this idea of career risk. What do you think about that? Yeah, look, this is the, um, you know, we, one of the things we like to say is there are a number of primary gating mechanisms, I think, really kind of holding crypto back in terms of adoption from an institutional allocation perspective, one of which is volatility. Um, and tied into that, of course, is this notion of career risk. And it's, um, it's, it's a bit, you know, it's, it's a bit frustrating, obviously, as someone trying to build a business, right? <laughs> In this space. And, you know, one of the, one of the real challenges for us is just finding enough people that are willing to be open minded. Um, and I'm reminded of, I'm sure you, you follow Paul Graham. Mm-hmm. And some of the writing that he does, but his race, his most recent post was the four quadrants of conformism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. And he sort of pointed out, you know, basically you have the two axes and along one axis is, um, uh, uh whether or not you're, you're kind of conventional in your thinking right. or you're open minded and then whether or not you're passive, uh, or aggressive. Right. Right. In most of the world, really for anything, but in, in you know, especially so in the world of, of asset management and, and allocator kind of mentality, is the passive conventional. Right. right. There's really no incentive, especially if you're an analyst at an endowment or or a fund of funds or what have you. You know, what's your incentive to really kind of color outside the lines, right. you know, and think independently about interesting opportunities and ideas? You're incentivized to keep your job. Exactly. Right. And that means that you're only going to present ideas to the investment committee that you know stand a reasonable chance of being heard. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't want to be laughed out of the room because obviously you don't want to look like an idiot. So right. um, 
you know, that's, uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's really unfortunate, right? You know, it, those of us, I think that enter the crypto space are obviously, you know, on the independent minded part of the spectrum. Um, and those of us that do it in an entrepreneurial way, I think are on the aggressive independent minded part of the spectrum and probably rate highly in terms of disagreeableness. And so for us, it can be a little bit perplexing when you come across folks where, um, you know, they've got these hard and fast rules, you know, that we just don't do crypto. Right. right. Um, and that's kind of where the conversation ends. And there's really no interest in sort of exploring, well, why don't you do crypto? Right. Why don't we have a chat about it? Uh, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really, it's really just, um, you know, it's just a reality, but I'm, I'm hopeful that there's enough folks out there just given the nature of the world today, so much is changing. Mm-hmm. You know, your traditional asset allocation programs need to be questioned and challenged given, given where, uh, where rates are and what have you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll find enough people that are willing to be a little bit more open-minded, but, um, yeah, but that's, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the primary challenges I think for anyone trying to build an asset management business in this space is just getting enough people to sit up and pay attention. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded of another book that I recently read, which is Steve Schwartzman's book, Whatever It Takes. Uh, you know, the first two thirds of the book were, was great. You know, it's a lot about building Blackstone and the last part was more of kind of a, a love letter to China. But um, when he talked about building the business, you know, he actually touched upon this notion quite a lot, you know, where you know, he went out of his way to sort of talk about how you know, most investors talk about how they're interested in making money, but they're really just interested in psychological comfort, right? Uh, they would much rather be part of the herd, uh, even when the herd is losing money. You know, it's that, uh, I think it was a, the Keynes quote around, it's better to fail conventionally than it is to succeed unconventionally. Right. Um, and that, that applies certainly to the world of asset management today. You know, that's interesting because... You know, you and I, I'm sure you're, you've read Marx as well as anybody. You know, Howard has always talked about this idea of volatility and this idea of conformism and second-level thinking. And it's interesting because, if I'm not mistaken, you know, Howard Marx has been pretty much on record saying that I'm not going to eat your lunch for volatility. You know, with volatility also has the potentiality, especially if you are sizing the risk, you know, correctly, that there's an outside chance of, you know, capital appreciation that you're going to make a return. Obviously, there's also a level of, you know, risk to the downside. But I'm not going to eat your lunch for volatility. I'm going to eat your lunch, though, when there's a complete capital loss, when you've lost all of my money. I'm not going to lose, I, I, I shouldn't be eating your lunch if you lose, you know, 10% of my lunch, because at the same time, you're taking risks that might make me another three lunches. So what do you think about that? So, you know, I think what you're, what you're kind of getting at there is, is disentangling uh, good ball versus bad ball. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that we, that we talk about in the context of our own business is kind of separating the notion or, or maybe being a little bit more exact in the definition of risk-adjusted returns. And, um, you know, this is a, the strategy that we seek to employ uh, is one that's much more of a Sortino strategy, right? So we expect to have, you know, obviously some degree of volatility, but the expectation is that most of that volatility will exist to the upside, right? Um, and that's, uh, you know, that should be something that, that people should focus on in this space and should resonate. Um, but, 
you know, most of, in my estimation at least, and, and I've been attempting to go down kind of the, the, the crypto Twitter path and sort of consume every everything that everyone's putting out there and I read lots of, of commentary and research, you know, most of the, the discussion thus far as it relates to exposure to digital assets is very much along the directional line of things, right? So, you know, we, we waded into the, the passive versus active debate recently. Um, and the vast majority of research has been really focused around this notion, notion of asymmetry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the growth is this exercise where they say if you had X percent of your 60, 40 traditional portfolio allocated to Bitcoin, then it's going to improve your risk just returns and what have you, notwithstanding the fact that there's more volatility because of diversification effects, right? And that's all well and good. But there's also this notion uh, that I think it's called the prospect theory. You know, Kahneman and Tversky wrote about this, right? Where investors and just people in general, they feel loss more than they feel gains, right? right? And that is absolutely true. And so this notion of asymmetry is, is academically interesting for sure, right? But the reality is you're, you're asking people to get excited about you know, potential upside of you know, call it 10 times, right? Mm-hmm. But you're also asking them to be willing to stomach drawdowns in the order of 70% plus. Right. And, and that's a heavy lift. And there's some people I think that can, that are comfortable with that, of course. Right. So there's no, there's really no surprise in my mind why macro investors have been attracted to the space. Right. So guys like, like Novo and, uh, and, and Dan Moorhead and, and recently Paul Tudor Jones, mm-hmm. you know, the whole macro trading game is all about asymmetry, right? And, but there's also a different sort of intestinal fortitude, having sat on a macro desk and, and worked with macro, great macro traders and thinkers, you know, there's a different sort of psychological profile, right, required to, to operate with that sort of mindset, right? Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, there's no surprise as to why folks like that embrace the space because that asymmetry is quite interesting. And they know how to sit through, you know, the vol, the risk appetite required, right? right? But for your traditional allocator, that's just a heavy lift, no matter, no matter how mathematically appealing it may be. And so, so I, we come at this a little bit differently. We say, okay, well, you know, that theoretical upside is there, but there's also that theoretical downside. Right. And what that means is there's a ton of volatility and there used to be this idea back in the days when hedge funds made money, <laughs> that volatility is a good thing. Right. right. And here we have an asset class. I mean, just looking at Bitcoin. So if you go back to 2014, Bitcoin's average monthly trading range is 35%. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. So think about if you're a, if you're a quant or, or high frequency trader, you know, that is giving you a ridiculous amount of opportunity to come in and just snipe alpha, right? Right. Um, so, so we think, you know, that, that issue around volatility can be solved for by taking an active approach in a space that is literally the definition of inefficient, right? It's an entirely new asset class. It's got highly fragmented market microstructure. It's dominated by retail flow, right? This is, literally the quintessence of, of inefficient. Mm-hmm. 
And so if you're, if you come at things with a hedge funds, you know, traditional, I guess, absolute return perspective, then you should be super excited about learning more about this space and right. how to attack it. So to put a bit of a bow on this, we spoke earlier about career risk uh, or what the economist Richard Zeckhauser calls blame aversion, which we refer to in one of our pieces. And this is where outcomes are the ultimate arbiter of whether or not a decision was the right one, irrespective of the, the quality of the analysis ex ante. So this is otherwise known as outcome bias. And in my mind, one way to solve for blame aversion is by reducing the probability that the outcome is a poor one. And, uh, and, and I think there's really kind of two ways of going about doing this, one, one of which involves strategy and the other involves delivery. So on the strategy side, uh, as we discussed earlier, most arguments in favor of crypto exposure today are unidirectional in nature um, and, and therefore involve binary thinking. So crypto is either long-term viable or it's not. Bitcoin either goes up or it goes down. But along the denialist maximalist spectrum lies a happy medium where the primary use case is pure and simple speculation where the mosaic of profitable scenarios contains multitudes. So this allows us to treat crypto as just another asset class to trade, right? Um, this is an opportunity for the here and now that doesn't contemplate theoretical future states of the world. It doesn't require technical proficiency of, of the underlying technology. It doesn't require Bitcoin to the moon in order to succeed. Uh, this sort of approach to active management in the space allows for continuous rather than binary thinking where, where attractive returns can be potentially generated regardless of the market backdrop. So a, a diversified multi-strategy, multi-manager portfolio comprised of quantitative traders, arbitrageurs, liquidity providers, and thematic investors like you guys at ARCA uh, has the potential in our estimation to allow for pretty solid upside participation while importantly mitigating the downside that is typically required to, to, to navigate this space. The net result of which is a vehicle that could deliver on the original promise of hedge funds, right? Which was to maximize absolute as well as risk-adjusted returns in relatively uncorrelated fashion. And then on the delivery side, uh, what's the best kind of delivery mechanism uh, out there uh, to, to kind of navigate this space? You know, I think investors strongly prefer having a way to access this space in a, in a continuous manner through a platform that was built with institutional best practice in mind, right? So there is meaningful existential de-risking involved when you align yourself with a team whose pedigree includes allocating, managing, raising billions of dollars in traditional hedge funds with a team who knows what good looks like, where everything it does is through an institutional lens and whose structure is designed to make accessing this compelling risk return profile in as familiar and approachable a manner as possible. So I want two things from you as we're getting to the top of the hour. One, talk to us a little bit about the difference between traditional hedge fund diligence and digital asset uh, diligence on the fund side. Obviously, that's kind of probably talk about you know back office and custodial issues, things that are not as frequent when you talk about traditional funds. And then I want to hear a little bit more, and I think people should hear about the team that you've been forming. And I think this is really interesting because the team that you've been forming are all coming from traditional finance and have amazing backgrounds. And again, I think this fits into the narrative that this is not just for the crypto anarchists. 
This is not for the people that want to see uh, an explosion of the financial system. These are people that are understand fiduciary responsibility. These are people that have tremendous understanding of risk management. And so, as I said, talk to us a little bit about the difference between diligence of traditional funds on versus you know digital asset funds, and about the team that you formed. Sure. So, um, you know the the difference between due diligence on a traditional hedge fund and a and a digital asset one, uh, it, it's not as stark as one would think. Um, you know, when when posed with this question, I I often say it's really probably eighty five percent the same uh, type of work. And, and in particular on the investment due diligence side, so IDD is in many ways the same, right? Um, you're, you're assessing investment opportunities and whether it's a quant strategy where a breakout's a breakout, a trend's a trend, um, you know, it's, it's in many ways the same type of analytical process that you bring to bear. Now, of course, it helps to understand a little bit about the underlying, um, but that is for the most part the same. Now, where things are a little bit different is on the operational due diligence side or ODD, right? So ODD, again, is probably 85% the same, um, but where there is a difference, it's it's in the, what we kind of characterize as infrastructure risk, right? And, and that's kind of on the custody and exchange side. And um, so, you know, we've, we've been thinking of different ways to kind of solve for that. And we hope to have an announcement here in the next couple of weeks on kind of a partnership along these lines. But... We think both with the with the increasing number of of custody providers entering the space that, that are, are very high quality in nature, and the different solutions that they're bringing to bear, we think that's becoming a, a very fastly mitigated risk. Um, and then, of course, on the exchange side as well, that's a risk that we think is in many ways mitigated too. Um, but again, there's going to be some solutions hopefully around that. You know, one one thing I want to underscore is the operational due diligence has always been important, but is of critical importance in this space, right? Uh, so we used to joke all the time at, at Grover that, you know, we, we get paid to take the investment risk, but we certainly don't get paid to take the operational risk. Um, and, and, and that's especially true in this space, where frankly, you just have a lot of immature uh, businesses that are trying to be built here, right? Um, and as we've seen, there have been quite a number of folks launching funds that just don't have an asset management background full stop, right? So they don't really understand what institutional control looks like. And so we need to make sure that we get that part of the puzzle right. And, and we spend a lot of time uh, ensuring that you know, we cross all of our T's and dot all of our I's there. And in doing so, um, this kind of dovetails into your question on team. You know, we've, we've built, uh, obviously, a team that we're quite proud of, but we've effectively kind of tripled down on this notion of operational due diligence and, and to ensure that we get that, get that part of the equation correct. Um, and so, for example, our COO is um, a gentleman who has um, years of, of building out ODD platforms at other fund of funds and allocators um, and has probably underwritten about $5 billion or so over the course of his career uh, from an ODD perspective. And... We also have, as our general counsel and chief compliance officer, a gentleman who performed the same exact function uh, for us at Grosvenor. Um, and in addition to that, we have on our advisory board some excellent people, one of whom is uh, a former partner at Grosvenor and, and former group CFO, 
who was literally the architect of ODD uh, at Grosvenor. So Grosvenor was the first one to institute this sort of practice. And this was probably back in 2001. And this gentleman built the, the entire thing. Uh, and so in many ways, he was kind of the, the pioneer uh, of ODD full stop. He is an advisor of ours um, and parachuting into some of these sessions with us to make sure that we're not missing anything. And then going even further, uh, and by the way, I should note that our, our compliance officer, as well as uh, this advisor, they, f- they formed at one point two of the three voting members of, of the operations committee at Grosvenor. Um, so we're really kind of you know, doubling down uh, on that there. And then to go even a step further, we're about to appoint an independent fund director who at one point was the global head of operational due diligence, one of the largest fund of funds in the world. Right? So um, this is something that we take <laughs> very seriously, as you can tell. Uh, and then, of course, we have other people on our advisory board, including my former CEO of Guard, uh, who are just excellent at all of this stuff. So um, I feel very, very confident that our ability to go out there and underwrite the business and operational risk uh, is, uh, is, is, is really top, top notch, but, uh, but of course I'm going to toot our own horn while I can. <laughs> no, it's, you know, I, I, I would say that you, as I mentioned, have, you know, built an exceptional team and as people learn more about it, uh, we'll make sure that we have links in the show notes and things of that nature. But before we do that, where can, obviously, you know, there are family offices and institutional investors who listen to the show. Where can they find out more about Delphi? Where can they reach out to you? What kind of you know outreach would you like? Yeah, so uh, you can find us uh, on our website. So we're at uh, Delphi uh, dot capital, and that's Delphi D A L P H A, so short for Digital Alpha. Um, and we're also you can find us on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Edification. My friends call me Eddie, so E D D Y Edification. A little fun play on words, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and yeah, happy to happy to engage, happy to chat. We love a good debate, um, and you know, yes, you do. Uh, we're pretty excited <laughs> about this. <laughs> yes, they do, and I definitely recommend you also checking out their blog. Um, there's some great writings there about the difference between active and passive management, about some of the companies out there, and about some of the discussions that are widely uh, available in digital assets. Great work and great writing there. So check out their blog. Again, we'll make sure that there's a link in the show notes. Matthew, thank you for joining us. This was Matthew Edwards, founding partner, CEO and CIO at Delphi Capital. It's a pleasure. Hopefully we can catch up with you again in a few months and see how things are progressing and what your thoughts are on the market then. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.